0: Hello and welcome to Bobby and Jens presented by Zwift. Zwift is the app that connects you to cyclists all over the world and makes indoor training fun. There are structured workouts, training plans that are really easy to follow, online group rides, and why not try a few races? You can even organize a meetup with a bunch of friends. You might just have to make your own coffee at the end though. With Zwift, you can even listen to this podcast while you ride around the Champs-Élysées. All you need is a bike, a trainer, and the Zwift app. Get a free seven-day trial, no strings attached, at Zwift.com. Ride on! Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Bobby and Jens. My name is Bobby Julik, and straight off the Tour de France commentary, yes, that's right, folks, the tour is on, my old buddy,
1: roommate, best friend, Jens Voigt. Jens, how you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, managed to quickly do the lawn before I had to leave to actually uh, go to my Eurosport office commentating. And what a tour it has been so far. Everything from triumph and agony, from absolute fairy tale to absolute disaster and everything in between. But me, I'm fairly safe. I'm good. Well,
0: I tell you one thing. My uh, my workflow gets a little interrupted uh, when the Tour de France is on because it's one of those races that you just you just can't miss. you can't turn your your head away from the TV, but you know there there's a lot of podcasts out there. there's a lot of information. everyone knows what's gone on, but the thing that just really jumps out at me is just the most amazing performances during the most amazing race in the world. Um, the stories, the character, the the trials and tribulations that people have to go through in this sport have, have just been amazing. Day after day after day, it's just you, you can't miss it. And that's that's the Tour de France. That's the sport of cycling. And um, I just I just hope everyone stays safe. And uh, you know we we have even more stages and more triumphs. Um, let's let's leave the um, defeats and agony out of it because that's obviously part of the sport as well. But to me, watching the Tour de France is like oxygen, and these guys put in so much hard work the entire year, and they're either rewarded or sometimes um, a little bit uh, ripped off from some of the things that we've seen. But let's just hope that the rest of the tour is nice and safe, that we
1: continue to see these great personalities and these great stories come out. Yes, indeed. Hopefully, we will see a lot more great riding, interesting races, and really thrilling finishes.
0: Well, today, our guest on the podcast is none other than Jim Okowitz. And we know the Tour de France is going on. We know the results. I know you guys know the results. But I wanted to go back in time a little bit and give you a little bit of story of Oach, as he's known in the world of cycling, and how he started the the biggest American team that there's ever been, the 7-Eleven team. Uh, he was a visionary. He started this team very, very young, and he implemented things like a women's team, a junior development team that I was luckily a, a part of, uh, track cyclists, road cyclists. It was truly an impressive vision that maybe we can go back and look at and and emulate in the future. Because um I don't know, Jens, what's your opinion? This this day and age, when you have a World Tour men's team, don't you think it's a really good idea for the development and inclusivity of cyclists and cycling to to have these other programs, a women's team, a track team, a cycle cross team, everything.
1: Yes, it would make perfect sense. Um, It would require a bigger budget, but yes, it would make make perfect sense. Let's start easy with road racing first. So every World Tour team, yes, should have a women's team and a development team. It does not have to be the same name, the development team, but there has to be a link. Um, And it would be in their own interest of the teams because then they could actually start to build up their own future superstars, they wouldn't have to spend millions of dollars to buy them from another team, they could just build up their own next superstar. So, yes, it would, it would make absolute sense, and I couldn't agree more. We need to see more of that.
0: Well, Jim was definitely a, a groundbreaker on many, many fronts, and he created a template that was emulated over and over to current day cycling. So please sit back and enjoy our interview with Jim Okowitz. So today I'm really happy to have on as our guest, Mr. Jim Okowitz, or as he's known admirably around the world of cycling, Och. Och, welcome to Bobby and Jens. Thank
2: you guys for having me on, appreciate it.
0: Well Och, um, we've known each other a long time and I was really making it an effort because I have a copy of a letter that I wrote to you back in 1986, asking to get on to the junior development team um, of 7-Eleven, which back then was the Colorado team which was 7-Eleven Jolly Rancher. I looked for an hour and a half to two hours because I know I have it up there, but I couldn't find it. I wish, you know, maybe maybe next time uh, when it gets a little bit cooler in my attic, I'll be able to find that. But, um, you know, it just made me realize how long we've known each other. And the more I kind of thought about this interview, I just realized how many people, both men, women, juniors, that you've helped become, you know, a professional cyclist. Have you ever thought about or counted the number of people that you've helped over the 40-some-odd years that you've been in the sport since starting 7-Eleven back in 1981?
2: Actually, no, I haven't. Uh, I, it would be a good exercise to go through. Um, and uh, I, But I haven't gotten an exact count of who those people might be. I, I know the people, I think, but I don't know the number.
0: It's got to be in the high hundreds you know, close to thousands, if 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 anything else. But so, so, Jim, what I really want to talk about is the genesis of your vision back in 1981. I mean, you were 29 years old. The Olympics in 1984 were right around the corner. And you just happened to start one of the most successful cycling teams in history. Um, tell us a little bit about how that whole project started.
2: Well, let me start by saying that the the vision that I had started in 1980, and it started after reading a a book about Peter Post and the TI Raleigh team, who, as you know, and historically they put a, Peter put a team together with a British sponsor, and that British team built itself up into being a a whirlwind team just a few years after that called Panasonic. So I read that book um, and was interested in in, in how uh, how he did it. Uh, It wasn't an exact uh, roadmap for me, but it gave me some ideas. And so I was racing in Allentown at the Trexler Town at at the Trexler Town velodrome and we had a rain session that went and we had to evacuate the velodrome and go into the adjacent barn which is where all the bike riders would go when it rained um, to let the track dry off again to get back out there and have a go at it so I was sitting there with Eric Hyden who was a good friend of mine and we just got through the 80 Olympics together because I was managing, um, the logistics for the U S speed skating team. And I was in Lake Placid with him and he wanted to bike race. So he got into bike racing. And so he was at the velodrome in Trexler town racing that night as I was. And we just happened to sit together and I gave him an idea. I said, look, Eric, I'd like to put a bike racing team together with a sponsor, one sponsor. And we got all the same bikes, we all have the same clothing, we pay the riders a salary, we, we pay all the expenses, and we move our team around the country. And, and, and we, uh, we race a little bit like they do in Europe on, on that kind of platform. And I said, would you lend your name to that type of project? And he said, sure, I'm in. And so I was like, okay. so I left the velodrome and then had this big vision uh, and now a plan, a little bit of the plan, put it uh, kind of secured with a piece of the foundation now underneath me. Uh, And that's when we searched out for a title sponsor. And uh, in reality, the first commitment we got was from Schwinn. And Eric got a contract with Schwinn to endorse their their, their bicycles because he was racing. And we also got Descent to provide us with all the uh, collateral materials that we needed for the team, clothing, suitcases, all of that. But I still didn't have a title sponsor, but it, we had some people out searching. And lo and behold, one of the uh, people working with us, George Taylor had a meeting with the Southland Corporation in Dallas, Texas in January of 81 early and he they had a commitment to sponsor the Olympic games in 84 via Peter Uberoth, who was the who was the CEO of those Olympics and they got a sport like all the sports did some sports got one sport got cycling one sport got track and field and Southland got cycling and George walked in there a week after they signed the contract for millions of dollars with the uh, uh, Olympic organizing committee in Los Angeles and Southland Corporation said, boy, we got cycling. What is, who, who knows anything about cycling that could help us? And, and George was there and he said, look, we got a group of guys. We think we can do this. We think we've got some ideas. And so they brought us into Dallas and New York, Tom Schuler came with me. We had some meetings with them. We told them what we thought we could do. And they said, let's go. And by the end of January, we were on our way to San Diego, ready to start spring training. In the same format that I just explained to you. We had a bike sponsor, Schwinn. We had the clothing and other accessory things committed by Desant. We had seven riders committed to the project and we had a van and we had a hotel and we started training in San Diego and getting ready for the opening races uh, that spring. And that's how it started.
0: Man, I mean, we we hear about how hard it is, even to this day, to find an iconic sponsor. And this sounds like it just kind of, came to you at the right place, at the, at the right time, with the right organization, with the right name. I mean, Eric Heiden had just won, what, five Olympic gold medals in 1980. Now, what, all of a sudden he wants to be a cyclist and you guys meet at a, at a well, obviously you knew him before, but you start talking about it at T-Town Velodrome and the, the rest is history. You guys are off cooking with gas. I mean, I just wish that it was this easy um, these days because you hear about it being so difficult. Well,
2: historically, as you know, after, when you go through these motions long enough, as a fundraiser, and I was a I, part of my responsibility uh, through that whole period of forty years, was raising the money every year to fund the, the program. So that was the starting point to that, and relationships with sponsors ebb and flow. They have a specific objective in mind when they when they put those kind of dollars into any project. And with us, it the focus was on the LA Olympics. So we really knew we had a four-year window and there's nothing like having a four-year window to know you're financed and can build a program and grow the program during that period into achieving what the ultimate goal was right then. And there was, No American had won a medal in the uh, uh, Olympic Games since 1923 or something, 24 Olympics. It was the last time any American won a medal in the Olympic Games. So the goal was to win a medal in the Olympic Games in 84 via the sponsorship with 7-Eleven, who also built the training velodrome in Colorado Springs and the actual Olympic velodrome in Los Angeles. So the commitment was massive on their part. Uh, and and they really gave the sport a big boost because it brought in other people that followed 7 elevens lead and sponsored teams as well. You know, we had teams uh, from ExxonMobil and and uh, Kellogg's and Wheaties, uh, uh, Len Pettyjohn's teams from. Colorado, you know, by the time you got to 1984, you had a slew of um, men's and women's racing teams in this country and a circuit to follow.
1: I'm just blown away by how far back it goes and how much commitment. I mean, you started really from scratch. You started from zero, this whole project and I mean, Back then you were a young men as well. You took a lot of weight on your shoulders to come true. And like Bobby said, you helped a lot, a lot of people into cycling. I mean, yeah, you created almost American cycling the way we know it. And of course it helped to have Eric Haydn there. I mean he's a legend himself. And it worked well
2: for the Olympics, didn't it? It worked really well for Olympics. The Americans won nine medals in, in those Olympics men and women track and road and and uh really set the stage for introducing american athletes to the international racing scene like it's never seen before i i mean i knew as a i raced up until i started the project in 80 i was still racing and i went to europe for milk race and World Championships, Olympic games, and things of that nature. And we weren't very much looked at in terms of being the competitors. We were more the pack fillers. Um, you know, we, we, we occasionally got some results because we were pretty aggressive uh, in, our, in our racing style, but we were very um, uh, immature in terms of what, we didn't know courses, we didn't know race uh, tactics, We didn't know who was riding with who, we didn't, you know, we were just racing uh, because we wanted to race. And so then after the LA Olympics with those medal counts in our pocket, it it, uh, opened up the world a little bit for American athletes uh, to get into the European racing scene, potentially. We didn't know that for sure yet, but we knew if we could race with them in this environment and beat them, why can't we go to Europe and beat them? And so that was sort of the, led us into the next phase. And, and what a phase it was.
0: I, uh, you know, I remember following this intensely because I got into cycling, watching the Olympics in 1984. And all of a sudden, you hire Mike Neal and you take uh, a bunch of you know American, North American kids over to Europe. and in 1985, you go to the Giro. And you actually win two stages with Ron Kiefel and Andy Hampsten. Um, that was kind of a instant confirmation that you're doing something right.
2: Well, yes. First, you had first we had to convince Southland of that. You know, because we needed more money, and we they don't have any stores in Europe, so they had to figure out a way to, to market this project to get some kind of return on their money and, and to even believe that we could be competitive. And we were not promising tour de to France then. We just wanted to go to Europe and race. And so they, I met with them after the Olympics and in the November, they approved the budget. And I was on the plane to Europe the next week. And I went to Italy with an idea, but I needed help. We had no cars, we had no service course, we we had no riders other than a few of the riders on the team that we could convince to come to Europe with us in January if I put it all together. The other half of the team said, no, we're not going. I don't want to name names, but half, good riders, (laughs) you know who they are, decided not to go to Europe. Some said, yes, let's go. So I went there and I needed help. So I visited, I went to, my, I said, I'm going to Italy. That's where everybody is that makes stuff. I visited with Santini, I visited with Colnago, I visited with Cinelli, I visited with you know uh, uh, all the suppliers and, and managed to get enough equipment put together so that we could show up for a race which we chose to be de bessege and could have spare bikes and spare bikes in a race car and a van to, to get the team <laughs> into the race and be able to support them. And uh, that's when the Deonkers came in to my domain and I knew them from racing with them in Belgium and they helped Bringing in some staff from Belgium and also helped us with some logistics, you know, hotels, travel, et cetera, that you have to do moving people around. But the big breakthrough came when we did our first race in Italy, Trophy Liguelia, March or late February of uh, uh, 2085. And we're standing there on the sideline. I was on the sideline. Mike was in the car. And here comes Ron Kiefel raging about 200 meters in front of the peloton with a kilometer to go. And nobody caught him. You had Moser, Algeria, you know, uh, all the... All the big Italian stars were right there, and bingo, bango. Ron wins Trophy Liguelia. They don't even know who Ron Kiefel is. So he gets up on the podium with design the big Italian TV announcer, and the look on his face was like, he was just, he didn't know what to say to Ron. And Ron spoke a little Italian, but that wasn't the point. I think he was just dazed that this guy came from nowhere and was nobody, but it gave us a lead then into potentially being able to ride the Giro that year, which was not the intent. We were going to be going home two weeks after this Liguelia race, but we extended our stay and did a few more races. And I met Senior Delolio, the owner of Honved. And Honved, was a sponsor in cycling, always as a second sponsor. It was Cope, Hoonved. He had the yellow jersey with uh, Van der Arden in in that time period. So he was familiar with the whole scene. And so I met with him in um, uh, Venegana Superiori, where he had his factory. We had dinner. He doesn't speak any English. I didn't speak any Italian. His son translated, and we shook hands and made a deal. He would sponsor our costs for the Giro. But now I had to get the clothing made by somebody because Desant couldn't ramp it up that fast. So I met with uh, Mauro Castelli, Mario Castelli. And he agreed to make the clothing for us for the Giro. So Castelli's making the clothing. The problem that we had right then is we didn't have enough riders on the team because you needed 10 riders for Grand Tours then. I only had six guys that were racing there. Davis, uh, Kiefel, Carmichael, Heiden, Schuler, Jacques Boyer. So I had to bring Jacques Boyer in. I went back to the tour of Texas and recruited Andy Hampson. I convinced him, you know, what are you going to do, Andy? Keep, I want to do the Olympics. Okay, I get it. But you know what, here's your chance. You come with us, do the Giro and, and get it off, you know, really get it off and, and, and do it. And he called me uh, a couple of days after I met with him in, in Austin, in a, in a restaurant again, we went out and talked in the morning and he said, I'll go. Then I got Bob Roll. Bob Roll came along too. So we put 10 guys together <laughs> for the Giro and they, we flew over there again and got our stuff from Costelli, got support bikes from Colnago. We got the whole package together and we start the Giro and we don't know anything about the Giro. We don't know a left turn from a right turn. You know, how fast should we go? How fast should we not go? there's kind of there was a little bit more organization to the race then and so uh yeah we we just started the race got going and all of a sudden Ron Kiefel's in a break with Cannellman and Francesco Moser coming in the uphill finish in Perugia and cleans their clock and wins the stage two days later we're up in the Alps up in the Dolomites and Lo and behold, Andy Hampsten b- b- blows the doors off of all the climbers on the on the last kilometer and wins the second stage for us. And Eric Hieden wins the inner Giro. He was going up, going for the sprints all all week long, and so that's how we finished the Giro. Um, and that was a start. That but, was a start, but like back then,
0: like you had and Andy Hampson was riding for a totally different team, and you were able to contract yes, him he was. for the Giro, like. That doesn't no. happen anymore. That that to me is just so cool. I was like, wait a second. You, you probably couldn't do that anymore. Yeah. No. Walk it. You get an invitation to the tour in 1986, and you just happen to win the first stage with, with Alex Stita.
2: 1987. Yeah. But to get there, but to get there was not, not a free ride because there had been no American team in the tour. And I I told Mr. DeLolio. Who knows the people, who knows Felix Leviton? Can I go there? And so in 85 after the Giro, he got me a a meeting with Leviton and I flew to Paris and caught up with him during the tour and asked for an invitation. And he said, uh, he was kind of like, I don't, I'm not sure. I don't think so. I maybe, we'll see. We'll see was maybe the answer. So we, had to put the team back on track, go back to South and say, hey, we want to go to the Tour de France, but we can't guarantee we'll be in it. But we need a little bit more money because now the good riders we have are being stalked by the other Euro teams. And, and I need a couple of other guys besides these guys to meet that 10 roster team for the starting line at the tour, if it does happen. So, uh, what do you think? Let's go, they said. Let's let's tr- let's take another step. And it wasn't until two weeks before the tour in '86 that Leviton sent me a telegram and said, "You're in." Two weeks. You had two weeks to get everything two ready. Two weeks. Yeah, and we were still then enough rider. So you know, what we did. We we went gone down to the tour of Mexico to prepare. And Mike was down there and he said, Hey, there's this great Mexican writer. I think maybe he could, he could help us out. I said, yeah, who is it? Uh, Raul Alcala. So I said, okay, bring him up to tour Redlands because that's what we're going to do. And then we're going to head to the tour de France. That's our preparation. (laughs) So Raul shows up, we hand him a suitcase. He never got a new bike like that. He never had clothing. You know, it was like, his eyeballs were so big, he, he couldn't believe it. So Raul became our our 10th rider for the 86 Tour. Came along with us and uh, finished the race, did a pretty good job, you know? And then his own career was also outstanding after that. But th- that was a little bit like how it went. We, we were motivated to go. We were always a little bit behind the eight ball because... We didn't know all the rules, and, and, and we didn't know how the game was exactly played yet.
1: We are currently engrossed in the Tour de France. And if you're looking to tackle your own double ascent of the Mont Ventoux, don't worry, Outside Plus has you covered. Bobby and myself are both members and get to enjoy training plans, exclusive gear discounts, entry to cycling events and more including access to premium content from other outside publications like Velo News, Trail Runner, Yoga Journal, Backpacker, and Peloton Magazine. All in all, it's $350 worth of value for just $99. But if you enter our special coupon code Bobby Jens 25 at checkout, you will get another 25% off. Go to velonews.com slash outside plus and enter Bobby Jens25. All one word, lowercase at checkout to receive our special 25% discount. Now back to our chat with Jim. So how and when did it change from you building up a team from zero? to have one of the biggest and best teams, one of the biggest budgets. I mean, you know, the years with Phonak BMC, you were one of the best and most dominating teams. You had the biggest, uh, the best riders in the team. That's uh, that's quite a development. Um, and as you can, or as you probably saw, things have changed a lot, right? I mean, these days, riders have, uh, you know, a bike at home, three race bikes, two TT bikes, each one. And you saw all that developing. So, so tell us a little bit about your days with uh, Phonak and, and BMC.
2: The real answer to your question happened in the next year, that how did we get from coming in, nobody knowing who we are, to, to, to making a face for ourselves and to build a reputation uh, uh, that we can back up with performance because you can do things and look like you got it all together but in reality you don't and you don't have the people that can compete with the with in that in that arena so we had spotty results we needed to find a way to get more consistent results so we could be competitive in all the phases of cycling cycling is not all the tour de france cycling is the classics Cycling is um, racing from February to October. And, uh, and, and the resources to be able to do that are astronomical, um, particularly because most of our athletes weren't Europeans. And one of their biggest dilemmas was they didn't have a place that home was not there in, in uh, Neuchâtel. Home was not in Cologne, home was, home was in Boulder, Colorado. You know, home was in San Diego, California. So they needed to get home. Their families were back there. They weren't making enough money, nor were their expectations their families or theirs to live nine months of the year in Europe. They had to get back. And so the transition for that happened because we were fortunate enough to have a couple of really qualified race organizers put together the Coors Classic and, and the Tour du Pont, which gave us the, and our sponsors, 7-Eleven in particular, an ability to be able to showcase the team in front of their customers and their and, and the American cycling audience. Along with that, those organizers brought in the Euro guys that were famous and people only read about, not on the internet, didn't exist, in cycling magazines that were that were six weeks old news, but you still wanted to look at the pictures and read the stories. And then to see these guys racing with Americans and the ability for the young guys, and Bobby was one of them, to be able to come into that environment as a rookie or as an amateur was overwhelming. That's, that was the next generation of American cyclists that came from that. And those were the years between 86, 87, 88, 89, 90, where all of those people showed their face. And became, in their own rights, uh, uh, incredible athletes and bike riders on the European scene. But those windows for us to be able to take that pressure off the riders so they could come home. Because then they could come home for two weeks before the race, spend some time training with and, and still see their families, come to the race, do the race, go home for a couple more weeks and then boom we come back and we're ready we start to prepare for the Giro or the tour uh but they got their breaks and so that was a very important part of our 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 uh, our uh, logistics in our planning the seasons for the riders so that they that, that we could keep people fresh mentally and physically
0: that's that's a really good point jim um obviously you know, that first generation of 7-Eleven riders really paved the road for all of us, for my generation, for the next generations to come. And yes, getting you guys back here on home soil really opened our eyes as, you know, junior riders or first-year seniors that, hey, we get a race against these guys, but they're on our home turf. Um, I got to do the Tour to Trump back in 1990, and I remember racing with you know, Steve Bauer and I think Hamston was there and, you know, all these Europeans. And it was an amazing um, realization that this isn't just a European sport now. This is an American sport. And, you know, I want to give a heartfelt thank you to to not only you, but all those guys that did those hard yards over there that had to deal with the um, the prejudice of being an American, like not knowing what they're doing in the Peloton, but, you know, guys like Ron Kiefel, Andy Hampston, Chris Carmichael, Jeff Pierce, Davis Finney, I mean, the list goes on and on and on, and those are still the guys to this day that I remember having pictures up on my wall and and very thankful to. Um, but I know that we we wanted to keep this a little bit shorter, so I, I kind of want to fast forward because that gave us so much information and you know i'd love to have you back and dive into that a little bit more but let's let's move into current day cycling the tour de france you know is started you've been around for 40 years in this sport now you've been on many many successful teams you've won the tour de france with cadel evans what are some of the main differences because very rarely if ever do we get to talk to someone with your knowledge experience and depth what are some of the the changes in cycling over the years that has made it made it better for everyone from all around the world, from every country, to be more inclusive and not have to cross these barriers that that you and that first generation of Seven Eleven riders had to do?
2: Well, one of and, and again one of, one of the things that we did and and were. And, and put a lot of thought into was if we were going to maintain what we wanted to do, which was giving Americans an opportunity to race in Europe, we were starting to lose some of that control because other teams wanted our guys, you know, quite frankly. And there was a limited number of Americans that were prepared to make this commitment to come to Europe and spend an entire season, more or less, with the adjustments I just told you about uh, by coming back to race, the big races in America, the, the commitment was, was, was big. And then there was also, quite honestly, some, some people weren't ready for that yet. They weren't ready to race in the European peloton. And, and I, I, I didn't want to push people into an environment that would either end their careers or send them home, you know, feeling uh, dejected. I wanted to make sure that, they, that we, the people we brought over could do, do the job. And I think in most cases, it, it worked out really well for everybody. Uh, and so I had to start recruiting Euro riders into the team. And, and when we started to do that, we, we started to, um, really solidify ourselves at a, at another level. As you know, with Lawrence and Vegerby, Yates, Steve Bauer adding to that existing roster we already had. And, and, and when we got, as things evolved, We set a pattern for now the other teams that wanted to do what we were doing. The Italian teams were Italian teams. There were no French guys riding on an Italian team. There were French teams and there were nobody else but French guys. The Belgians, just Belgians. Now you start to find out these Australian guys can ride a bike pretty fast. The English are not so bad. Scandinavians are pretty good. And, and how do you squeeze everybody into these, t- these traditionally uh, um, traditional old school teams with uh, sport directors that only see cycling in, in one way? And I think as they got to know me a little bit and I got to know them, They were curious a little bit how it worked, like, how do you get a Frenchman to get along with an Italian at the dinner table and, and moving from site to site and doing camps and sharing in the good stuff and the bad stuff together and enjoying the experience and, and, and the audience also had to make an adjustment too. Because then it wasn't all about the Giro and it wasn't all about the Welta and it all, it wasn't all about Perry roubaix All the races were important now. And, and the transition from them being only a French event or only an Italian event, they now became more international. Of course, you had Eddie Merckx and Jamundi and all the big riders riding all over the world, but not the real brunt of the peloton moving along with them. So the sport got a little tighter and, and, and it, it became a little bit more logistically different than what it was set the way it was. And I think that really started in the early Motorola days more so when teams like Panasonic and Leger and, and Ferretti and the guys that were, and LeFavor, the guys that were my peers Started visualizing visualizing that as well. And so the the teams became international for the most part, as they are today.
1: Jim, um, now that we talked about um, your guys uh, back uh, with uh, the 7 Eleven team raced differently, what would be if you could put a dream team from back in your days back into today's Tour de France from your 7 Eleven team? Who would be The team you would pick from the old boys to race in today's Tour de France, if you could do it somehow.
2: Well, I kind of want to think about that a little bit because I, I, you know, we had so many good people, such a high level uh, of of athletes and great skills, and uh, you you make it a little easier for me because I don't have to pick ten; I only have to pick eight. But uh, (laughs) because that that was a big differential. for us and for other teams, uh, through that uh, transition, I, 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 you know, I, I, it would all depend on, as you know, other circumstances, you know, what's the course look like? Um, you know,
0: I'm going to take a little bit off your plate then, because I am a huge fan of the seven 11 team. So I'm going to give it a stab and see where it goes. So my GC leader would be Andy Hampston. My sprinter would be Davis Finney. I'd have two climbers, Raul Alcala and Dog And then since you kind of let me off the hook there with going only eight instead of 10, I would then fill it up with those hard guys. Um, Sean Yates, Steve Bauer, um, Bob Roll. And just a little American influence, uh, I'd say a guy like Frankie Andreu. I mean, you're right. We put you on the spot there. You've had so many amazing riders over the years, and the list just goes on and on. And now some of these guys that you've helped have children that are interested in cycling. So when I asked you at the beginning of the show of how many people you've influenced, Jim... It's in the thousands, and I just want to take this time to thank you for everything that you've done for me personally, for the sport of cycling, and for coming on our podcast. Um, it's been a great talk. There's so much more I'd love to get you talking about because I'm just sitting here just lapping it all up because like, that's that's what... I was reading about in those cycling magazines before the internet way back, way back when. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for coming on Bobby and Jens. And please, please, please consider, because there's so much more of your career that we need to hit on, uh, coming back onto Bobby and Jens in the future.
2: Yeah, I appreciate it. I would, I would add one more thing to your list because you, I think you would agree. Ron Kiefel's got to be there. Oh
0: my God, I cannot believe I, I uh,
2: forgot the Wookiee. Yeah. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. And 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 so yeah. Um and that's why it's hard to do cuz there's other guys too. Um and yeah, it's, it's a nice list to have. Let me thank Bobby, you for being persistent and getting me off the couch and and uh putting me on on the show and Jens always a pleasure. Uh and I can tell you right now if I was going to pick my four guys to do the bulldog work, it would be Kiefel, Yates, Schar and Voigt. Thank you. Thanks
1: a million. That's a huge compliment from somebody like you who worked with the best. I'm I'm pleasant. I'm I'm thank you. Thanks a lot. That really means a lot to
2: me. I'm I'm blown away, actually. Thank you. You're welcome. You deserve it. So and Bobby's in a different category. He's not a he's not he's not a bulldozer.
0: No, not even close. He's a winner. Not even close. Leave me yeah, off that list. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> Jim, Jim, thanks again. Okay, and thanks, we'll guys. hope to talk to you again soon. Okay, well, that's all the time that we have for this week. And thank you very much to Jim Okowitz for being our guest.
1: Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Velo News production in association with Shocked Giraffe.
0: The producer was Mark Payne, and this episode was edited by Tim
1: Moza. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us.
0: Before we go, a quick word on our sponsor, Zwift. When it comes to sport, I always tell my kids rule number one have fun. On Zwift, fun is fast. Tour de France winner Garrett Thomas uses it. So does Matteo van and Australia's Neve Bradbury Zwifted her way to a world tour contract. One of my favorite things on Zwift is seeing the flags of people from all around the globe that I get to ride with. I love the structured workouts, doing group rides with friends, and when I'm feeling strong, doing a few races. They definitely hurt, but they are fun. It's easy to get started. All you need is a bike, a trainer, and the Zwift app. Visit Zwift.com and hopefully I'll see you on there soon. Ride on.